Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I start, I want to mention that I'm doing kind of a pledge drive right now. As you know, I do this full-time. I write all the episodes, I research them, and I record them myself out of my home, and my only co-worker is my dog. So, I want to do a little bit of a pledge drive to bring a bit of extra money in to help pay the bills. And you know what? This does not mean that you need to pay any money at all. I'm just appreciative that you listen to the podcast, and really, that's all you need to do. But if you want to do a bit more, you can donate to the podcast. And to do that, all you have to do is go to CanadaEHX.com and click Donate. Through PayPal, it'll send a donation to me, and the donation can be whatever you want. It can be as low as $5. Anything is appreciated. And if you do send a donation, I'll make sure I thank you on the air throughout my social media, and I'll mention you at the end of the month along with all my patrons and other donators. Like I said, this is a lot of work and I love it, but gotta pay the bills, I gotta feed myself, I gotta feed my dog. So if you want to do a donation, I truly appreciate it. But if you don't, and you just want to listen, I appreciate that too. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Before Europeans arrived with the gold rushes and the fur trade, the Nelson area was the home to several indigenous people, including the Kootenay. They would trade throughout their Kootenay region and into the Okanagan, but also with the Blackfoot on the eastern side of the mountains who occupied the prairies. This trading network lasted for centuries until it was heavily disrupted with the arrival of Europeans. There were plenty of fur traders, including David Thompson, who came to the area, but they did not stay long. It was not until the discovery of gold and silver in 1867 that settlers arrived and decided to stay. This would begin the slow process of establishing the community of Nelson. In 1886, two brothers named Osner and Winslow Hall left their home in Washington and journeyed into British Columbia in the hopes of finding gold themselves. They would begin to look at Toad Mountain, near present-day Nelson, but they were unsuccessful. Then, while they were fetching horses for the return trip home, they came upon something else, a copper-silver deposit, and from that point, the community of Nelson was born. Beginning in the winter of 1887-1888, around 400 people lived in tents along the creek in what is today the centre of the community. G.M. Spruill, the magistrate for the area, then started to lay out a town site and he would name it Stanley, in honour of Lord Stanley, the Governor-General and creator of the Stanley Cup. The issue was that Harry Anderson, the constable for the growing tent community, already named the town Salisbury. What followed was a feud between those who wanted the town named Stanley and those who wanted it named Salisbury. In the end, the decision was made to call the community Nelson. Not for Admiral Nelson, as some may assume, but for Hugh Nelson in 1888, who was the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia at the time. By 1889, lumber was being produced in the community and the tents were gone to be replaced with log shacks and frame buildings that started to spring up across the community. At the time, all the ore had to be shipped down to the smelter in Butte, Montana by pack train, boat, and railroad. In 1894, two railroads had been built to the community to take advantage of its growing wealth. And in 1895, two years after the British Hall Mining Company was formed, 
a four and a half mile long gravity operated aerial tramway was built from the mine to a new smelter in the community. This would greatly increase the prosperity of the community as 875 buckets of ore, amounting to 10 tons, went down the mountain every single hour. By 1897, the community had grown enough that it could be incorporated with a population of 3,000 people. The local mining activity turned Nelson into a major distribution and transportation centre for the entire region, and by this point the community had several homes, stores, hotels, churches, a new school, hospital, jail, fire hall, and the first hydroelectric generation plant in the entire province. Around this same time, Nelson began to develop a thriving Chinatown. The Chinese community in Nelson would develop many thriving businesses in this area, including restaurants, stores and hotels, as well as laundries and grocery stores. Many others worked as cooks, laborers and gardeners in the growing community. But sadly, at the time, those Chinese Canadians were heavily discriminated against, and it was not an easy life so far from their home. In 1901, the Sing Chong Laundry would be built, and today it stands as the last remaining Chinese-Canadian built and owned building in the original Chinatown of Nelson. That building, which stands to this day, is also a reminder of the vibrant culture that existed in Nelson in that area before it was taken over by new arrivals and the Chinese-Canadians were pushed out. The building, which is now the Kootenai Co-op Radio Building, as well as a commemorative stone monument, honors the Chinese Canadians who settled in Nelson over 120 years ago, and in 2016 it was made a provincially recognized heritage site. In 1908, a stunning four-story stone building would be built in Nelson with an arched entryway, square corner tower, and round turret. It wasn't a castle, but a new courthouse that was built on the location of the original courthouse for Nelson. This grand courthouse is a stunning building and it showed the importance of Nelson at the time as a centre for the legal system of British Columbia. The building still stands to this day and is an incredibly impressive sight to see. It is often called the most beautiful building in the entire city of Nelson and it is no surprise it was listed as a provincial heritage resource in 1985. The hill mine smelter that had helped to fuel the growth of Nelson was destroyed in a terrible fire after someone lit it on fire. This was not the only case of arson that year, with 12 other fires lit over the previous two weeks alone. The smelter fire was especially devastating for the community, and it would bring down not only the office and several other buildings, but cause heavy damage to the 200-foot smokestacks at the smelter. One small fire had been discovered by a watchman around noon, and he was able to put it out, and extra guards were called to watch the smelter. Then, at 9pm, another fire erupted, and within a few minutes, the entire plant was burning, and by midnight, everything had been consumed. The plant was built of timber, and there was no water supply available to fight the flames. And at the time, the smelter had not been used in three years, but the loss of such a prominent structure after two weeks of other fires hit the morale of the community hard. In all, it was estimated the fire cost $50,000 in damages. As for the other fires over the previous two weeks, they included the Nelson Brewery, the home of a Chinese-Canadian, the home of the manager of the Hudson's Bay Company store, a homestead residence, stables, as well as the lumber yards, causing upwards of $150,000 in damages, no small amount at the time. The city wanted to catch the person, offering a reward of $500 for information leading to the apprehension of the person. An armed man was also placed at nearly every house in the community, and it was said that everyone was suspicious of fellow citizens, and it was impossible to walk through town without being watched. Two watchmen were even held up at the point of a gun under the belief they were the arsonists. 
Only days after the smelter fire, James McDonald, a former alderman, saw a man walking along the lake shore where he lit a fire. He was questioned by McDonald and then began to run, and McDonald gave chase, eventually catching him in the streets of Nelson. The man stated his name was Brownson, and he had just arrived from Spokane. With no evidence against him, he was released and told to go back to Spokane and never return to Nelson. At this point, the fires completely stopped in the community. On November 2, 1917, Robert Hampton Gray was born in nearby Trail, but he would grow up in Nelson where his father was a jeweler. After attending university in Alberta and British Columbia, he would join the Royal Canadian Naval Volunteer Reserve, which was called into action at the outbreak of the Second World War. He would transfer into the Royal Canadian Air Force and would fly in Africa, Norway, and as part of the British Pacific Fleet during the invasion of Okinawa in April of 1945. On August 9, 1945, only a week before the end of the Pacific War, he was flying in Anagawa Bay, leading an attack on several Japanese naval vessels. He would sink the Amakusa ship before his own plane was shot and crashed into the bay. For his bravery in concentrating fire on five warships and flying low to ensure success, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. Sadly, he would lose his life in the crash, becoming one of the last Canadians to die in the Second World War, and he is also the second to last Canadian to ever be awarded the Victoria Cross. Several places, including the Legion Hall in Nelson, are named for him. There is also a memorial to him, the only memorial to a foreign soldier on Japanese soil at Onagawa Bay. Gray's Peak, a mountain in British Columbia, is named for him, as is an airport, a school, and a Harry DeWolf class offshore patrol vessel. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. On September 5, 1927, the Capitol Theatre would open in Nelson. Costing $75,000 or $1.1 million today, Mayor J.A. McDonald cut the ribbon on the building and called it one of the finest theatres in North America. The building quickly became a movie house for the Paramount chain of movies and occasionally showed live performances in local groups, including vaudeville performers. Unfortunately, by the 1940s, the building had fallen into disrepair, a sad state that would continue for decades. Eventually, the roof collapsed and left the theatre in shambles. In 1982, the Capitol Theatre Restoration Society was formed with the goal of returning the building to its former glory. On April 17, 1988, the restored 426-seat theatre was once again open to the public and would begin to showcase local and regional theatre groups, musicians, and other artists. 
The building, looking as it did when it opened almost 100 years ago, hosts 140 performances a year in non-COVID years and averages 30,000 ticket sales per person. If you go to Nelson, stopping by this majestic building that has been lovingly cared for after years of neglect is a must. By the early 1980s, Nelson was dealing with an economic downturn and a large shopping centre was taking business away from the businesses in the core of the community. To save the area, and specifically Baker Street, Nelson restored all the buildings to their original style with no aluminum facades. By 1985, Baker Street was completely transformed, and this would be the beginning of the move of Nelson from being a resource town to an arts and tourism town. Today, walking down Baker Street in the historic district is one of the promoted Nelson visitor activities. The restoration of the street had another impact as well. In 1986, it was chosen as the filming location for Roxanne, a movie starring Steve Martin that was an adaptation of the classic Serrano de Bergerac. The movie was shot all over town and the local fire hall served as the primary set. The movie has gone on to become a classic, ranking as the 71st funniest movie of all time by Bravo, and today you can take the Roxanne walking tour through the community to see all the sites that were part of the classic 1980s film. South of Nelson, you will find the Dukabor Discovery Centre. This museum lets you experience the sights and sounds of Dukabor life in the southern British Columbia region through 10 historic buildings on 10 acres of land. The site was officially opened in 1971 and has been operating for half a century and providing guests with the chance to see what life was like for the Dukabors who came to the area, were persecuted for their beliefs, but persevered and would become part of the fabric of the province. The village ensured that the disappearing Dukabor villages were not lost to time, and the buildings that were used by those pioneers, as well as their artifacts, would have a place for years to come, and the message and story of the Dukabors would continue to be told. If you want to learn more about the history of Nelson and the people who populated it over the past 125 years, you should visit the Touchstones Nelson Museum of Art and History. The museum, which is housed in the nearly 120-year-old building itself, has extensive displays that highlight the indigenous people, the arrival of Europeans, what life was like in the mines, transportation, the hydroelectric history, the culture, and much more. As for the building, it used to be the post office and customs office for many years until 1962, when the city government took over the building for their own needs. The museum occupied a small portion of the building from 1955 to 1959 and then returned in 2003 and made the building its permanent home. One interesting note, from 1960 to 1971, the museum was housed in a formal brothel building from the wild and crazy early days of Nelson. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the community of Nelson. Next week, we're looking at the community of Fort Nelson, British Columbia. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, 
Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawat, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.